Welcome to another edition of the Banyan Books podcast. My name is Ross McKeechee. I'm joined today with the three co-authors of the new book, Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It. There's a documentary coming out about this book by the same title. It's called Bright Green Lies. You can watch it online. You can go to the website, www brightgreenlies.com and get all the info about the film. Before I introduce our guests, I'll just read a brief quote about this book to give our audience a bit of an idea on the, the context. So from Chris Hedges, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author, he says, Bright Green Lies exposes the hypocrisy and bankruptcy of leading environmental groups and their moral prominent and their most prominent cheerleaders. The best known environmentalists are not in the business of speaking truth or even holding up rational solutions to blunt the impending ecocide, but instead indulge in a mendacious and self-serving delusion that provides comfort at the expense of reality. They fail to state the obvious. We cannot continue to wallow in hedonistic consumption and industrial expansion and survive as a species. Pretty clear. So I'll introduce our guests, the co-authors of this book. First up, we have Derek Jensen, who is an author, teacher, lecturer, activist, and small farmer. Derek is the author of more than 25 acclaimed books, including A Language Older Than Words, The Culture of Make-Believe, and Endgame. Democracy Now named Derek the poet philosopher of the ecological movement. He was also named as one of Utney Reader's 50 visionaries who are changing your world. His website is derekjensen.org. Hi, Derek, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. And next up is Lier Keith. Lier is an author, small farmer, food activist, environmentalist, and radical feminist activist. She's the author of six books, including The Vegetarian Myth, Food, Justice, and Sustainability. And this book has been called the most important ecological book of this generation. She has written two novels, and she is the co-author with Derek Jensen and Eric McBay of Deep Green Resistance, Strategy to Save the Planet. She is the editor of the Derek Jensen Reader, Writings on Environmental Revolution. And this distinguished guest has been arrested six times. That's neat. Her website is lierkeith.com. Max Wilbert is an author, organizer, activist, and wilderness guide. He's an essayist whose work has been translated into several languages and the author of Voices of Resistance, We Choose to Speak, and other essays. He is part of the Deep Green Resistance, is editor-in-chief of the Deep Green Resistance News Service, and serves on the board of Fertile Ground Institute for Social and Ecological Justice. Max also produces the Green Flame podcast. His website is maxwilbert.org. So welcoming Derek, Lier, and Max. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ross. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. And before we start, um, I want to uh, acknowledge a couple of things. One of them is um, 
I want to thank my co-authors. Um, and it's weird writing a book with, with multiple people. And in this case, um, you can tell uh, who wrote which sections because uh, if they're interesting and beautifully written, they were probably written either by Max or Lierre. Uh, second, uh, I want to acknowledge that Julia Barnes is a hell of a filmmaker. I think that the, the film is extraordinary and, and the trailer is, is just great too. And then the third thing is I want to um, explicitly acknowledge that just as the natural world is under fire or under assault, so too for independent thought and independent bookstores. And um, I want to acknowledge that, uh, that you are struggling against the behemoth, Amazon, et cetera, and to strongly encourage um, anybody who lives in your region to commit to buying a book a month or, and no, you didn't ask me to say this. Anyway, um, um, I just think, I think there was a local bookstore here in Crescent City that lasted from, I don't know, 2009 to 2015. And I made a, an absolute commitment that I was gonna buy one book a month. Um, because we need to support independent bookstores to support independent thought, especially when, I mean, it's crazy. I just read the other day and then I'll shut up that Amazon sells 54% of the books in the United States and 80%, more than 80% of the uh, eBooks. And it is horrifying to me that one large corporation controls that much book discourse. And so I am begging people to uh, support independent bookstores, including yours. Wow, thank you, Derek. That's really amazing of you to say that. And we're very lucky at Banyan Books with the committed community. Uh, it's actually Banyan's 50th year in business as an independent bookstore. Colin Limworth, who's been running the store, still shows up every day. And uh, his daughter, Alethea, is, is, um, is working at the store as well. So we're hoping to see another 50 years. Thank you very much. Um, diving into this, this book, I mean, there's, there's so much well-researched, uh, grounded information in here. I think the first thing to do for people to understand is defining the problem. So what, what are the bright green lies? If you guys can give our audience a bit of a briefing on what are the bright green lies, i.e. how has the environmental movement lost its way? Well, I'll go first. Um, so the environmental movement, you could say it really started with Rachel Carson. So it's been going about 50 years. Modern environmental Modern, movement. sure. Um, and really the goal was I mean, our North Star was to protect the places and the creatures that we love. So, you know, living land bases and wild creatures, that was the point because they were under assault, sometimes to the point of extinction, more and more to the point of extinction. So we had a movement that was, the goal was to protect them as much as we could. And that all changed. At some point, I don't know, maybe in the eighties, it started to slip um, because there was another group of people who noticed that we were wrecking the climate by burning fossil fuel. And that's true. And it's a very grim problem. Um, we are under an emergency with this. We've wrecked the climate. So 
their goal was to find a way to continue to power industrial civilization that was perhaps less damaging to the climate. And this goal has taken over now. So most people who call themselves environmentalists um, in some way or other will support those goals. The problem is they're completely at odds with saving the planet, that industrial civilization, this is what it is. You take living beings and living communities, you turn them into dead commodities, and then you turn that into private wealth. And the point of being an environmentalist was to stop that. And these people want to continue it. They just want to find a different way to fuel it. So our movement has been devastated by this, by this shift in values. And I don't even think anybody's really named it as such. It just happened. You know, in my lifetime, this shift happened. So we want to call everybody back to our original goal. Do you really want to save this planet or do you just want to save this way of life? example of this, you, you can get 100,000 people marching on the streets of New York or Paris or Washington, D.C. And if you ask them why they're marching, they will say to protect the planet. And if you ask them for specific demands, they'll say, we want subsidies for wind and solar. And what that means effectively is that the environmental movement, or at least that part of the environmental movement, has been turned into a lobbying arm of a sector of industrial capitalism, which is just utterly horrifying. Um, so Max, do you wanna dive in? Yeah, I would just add that it's really important that everyone recognize that climate change is a symptom. And so much of the environmental movement has shifted to focusing on climate change as the problem. And if you look at it in that way, it's very easy to get in that mindset that Lierre talked about of focusing on solving global warming and in so doing protecting industrial culture, you know, protecting uh, this way of life from the, the very real harms of, of fossil fuels and global warming. But global warming is a symptom of a much deeper problem right? The vast majority of species extinctions around the world that are happening today are not happening because of global warming. They're happening because a bulldozer goes through a forest and runs over the last of a certain species of orchid, or a logging company comes through and clear cuts, you know, the last home of an endangered primate. Um, or they're happening because, you know, the, the last vaquita porpoises are being caught in these fishing nets. Uh, in the in the in the ocean, so the same is true across the board. Whatever environmental issues you look at, whether you're talking about deforestation, desertification, dead zones in the ocean, uh, the collapse of the entire ecology of this planet that we're living through right now, it's global warming. <laughs> global warming is playing a big role in this, and it's going to play an increasingly large role. But if you look at the historic uh, component, the bulk of the damage to the planet has been done without global warming playing a big role at all. And so if you only focus on global warming, you're literally ignoring the vast bulk of the harm that is being done to this planet. And that is what, you know, as Derek and Lear just said, that's what has happened to our movement. It has been co-opted from a movement that was focused on shifting our loyalty from the culture of machines and excess and gluttonous energy use to the living planet. Instead, it's focused now on preserving that gluttonous 
energy usage and that consumptive way of life. And that's why there's such a big focus on we need to repower this society uh, because they need to keep the energy flowing. If you want to have this modern industrial way of life continue, you need abundant amounts of cheap energy to keep it going. And that's what so many uh, bright green environmentalists are trying to achieve. Is what so you guys call solving for the wrong variable, is it? Sorry to interrupt yeah. there, Dan. Yeah. I just want to say one thing real quick that is that, um, so two, two of the lies that undergird everything in the book are, one is that wind and solar are in fact good for the planet, and two, wind and solar, et cetera, hydro, all the other so-called renewables. Um, one, wind and solar are good for the planet. And two, um, wind and solar can actually do what they say, which is to power the economy. And both of those are not accurate, which we can get into more later if you want or not. Absolutely. In fact, oh, sorry, Leah, your mic's not uh, coming through. Technologies are at least as destructive as um, um, the burning of fossil fuel. And in fact, some of them are dramatically worse in terms of greenhouse gases only. And yet they're being held up as some kind of solution. So even if you don't even want to defend the planet, you just want to use these energy sources, um, they are worse. So we really want people to understand the math involved um, because it's the whole thing is a lie. And then on top of that, they don't even scale up. So it can't be done. So just on every single level, we are being sold a bill of goods that's never going to come come through. Right. Okay. Is there, a, for instance, a friend of mine sent me a video last night about looking at the economic um, impact of solar and wind and battery storage, and it was a very convincing economic argument. But you guys are are saying that that doesn't even matter. What matters is saving the planet. And these things simply can't be sustained and in fact are worse in many ways than fossil fuels. Can you give us a brief understanding of how they're worse than, than fossil fuels? Well, I can, I can give a start with that. And you know, I think you have to start with biomass when you're talking about what's worse than fossil fuels. The data has shown that biomass is about 20% uh, more polluting than coal in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. But in the United States, throughout the European Union, it's still counted as carbon neutral because basically what biomass is, is you chop down forests, you grind them up into pellets, you dry them in industrial furnaces, and then you throw them in a power plant and you burn them to generate power. Uh, there are entire forests in the Southeast United States that are essentially devoted to producing electricity in Europe now. And they call this carbon neutral to cut down a forest in the US, pulp it, send it across the ocean in uh, container ships powered by bunker fuel, and then burn them in power plants. Um, they say this is carbon neutral because the forest will regrow and recapture the carbon that's released in the burning. Now, on one hand, that's not actually true. Uh, so many forest lands, industrial forest lands, they end up becoming less and less uh, productive, right? The forest just, the soils can't take it after a number of rotations. They can't produce 
trees like they used to anymore. And so you get desertification, you get a desert. Um, and all that carbon that was in the soil and in the trees ends up in the atmosphere. And the other thing is that, you know, as Derek says so well in the book, he writes about how, you know, this is just an incredible form of carbon laundering. It's like if you, Ross, you know, you get your, you earn your salary at, at the bookstore and you put it in the bank and then we come along and we steal the money from your bank account every 10 years. And we say, you know what, it's okay. This is a money neutral situation because you're just gonna keep working and you'll, real, you'll refill your bank account in the future, right? I mean, this is why the whole idea of net zero doesn't make any sense because there's no carbon surplus in nature. The, the planet has a functioning ecological uh, system. It has its own plans and its own uh, rules and systems for how it deals with things like carbon dioxide and nitrogen and the various gases in the atmosphere. So the idea that we can just cut down forests, burn them, and then regrow forests like crops to somehow suck that back up uh, is reflective of the problem in so many ways. And these southeastern United States forests that are being destroyed at an incredible rate. Uh, I mean, we're talking millions of acres to feed these biomass power plants in Europe. Uh, these are some of the most biodiverse forests in the country, some of the most biodiverse forests on the continent. And, you know, there are entire species that are being driven to extinction by the logging of these, these forests. And it's not just the forests of the American Southeast. Um, it's forests in Romania, uh, Ukraine, Russia. It's, and, you know, we hear a lot about wind and solar, but um, among renewables in Europe, uh, biomass is by actual amount of energy produced has seen the greatest growth since 1990 of, of any of those forms. And is with the exception of two countries in the EU, the greatest source of renewable energy in any of them. And I wanna mention another bit of accounting shenanigans. We all, we hear that Costa Rica is a miracle because they get 99% of their electricity or whatever from hydro. And one of the problems is that hydro is counted as carbon neutral, but in fact, I mean, let's ignore the fact that Hydro kills rivers, kills the land inundated under reservoirs. In addition, it ends up that it's actually worse even for, for the climate than, our, um, than burning coal, for example, in that they call dams methane bombs because they produce so much methane and or methane factories also. And it'll be about one and a half times the greenhouse gases or one and a quarter. It's, it's, it's more greenhouse gases than coal. And yet they account it and they pretend, I mean, part of the problem is we pretend that our accounting systems are more important than what happens in reality, which is pretty much the entire culture in a nutshell. Do you wanna say something? Yeah, I mean, back to the Southeast forest, I just want people to try to think about the creatures that live there and nowhere else, that have nowhere else to go. And we were supposed to care about them. Like the 
American kestrel, the Southern American kestrel. It's the smallest kestrel on the continent. It's this little tiny bird of prey and they're extraordinary animals and they live nowhere else. So when you take their home away, they will be driven into extinction. And there's species after species after species. This has been a refugia since the Pleistocene. Um, and when they're gone, they're gone. And that was supposed to be the point that we wanted to protect them with all our hearts. And instead, we're just ripping the trees out and burning them and calling it carbon neutral. And like, I just want the horror of that to sink in, that if you call yourself an environmentalist, this is what your movement is now declaring um, to be the goal. They're citing um, um, huge solar installations in desert tortoise habitat, um, crushing them, uh, leaving them, putting up fences. And when they try to move the desert tortoises, the desert tortoises try to go home and then pace back and forth outside the fence until they die. And this is, there are, and I just yesterday uh, heard about uh, Biden gave the go ahead for a feasibility study for a huge pumped hydro, a huge set of dams uh, for energy storage um, down in the desert. And this is, there's a, there's a line from someone in the book saying, I think it was Ozzy Zenner saying that um, environmentalists seem to be against all batteries unless they're used for electric cars. And this has been, uh, one, of, one of the things I wanna get at is that this is a huge coup to get environmentalists to support and to cheerlead um, huge destructive infrastructure projects. This, this wouldn't have happened. This, this was 40 years ago, uh, environmentalists opposed dams universally. And now you have mainstream environmentalists who actually argue in favor of dams. That's how bad it's gone. This is what the whole, um, the, new, the Green New Deal is supposed to be based on. And he claims that this can be done, but it involves things like increasing the number of dams by a factor of 15 in this country there aren't any more rivers, like there's nothing left to take. And they wanna put up that many more dams. It's, it's mind boggling um, the lengths to which they will go to try to make this seem feasible on paper. I don't know how anybody thinks we can put in 15 times the number of dams and have any fish left at all. Yeah, just they don't care about the fish. Yeah. Yeah, and just to, just to you know, circle back as well off we are what you were just saying in the original question ross you know how are the in what ways are these things worse than the status quo i think um than fossil fuels for example you know i think derek's point is really important that these things are worse because they have allowed the entire environmental movement essentially large portions of the environmental movement to be co-opted into fighting on the side of industrialism right these technologies and the, the people, the, the marketing companies and the mainstream environmental groups that have been promoting them, they have uh, undermined the opposition to industrial destruction. 
very significantly. And you know, the other thing that is extremely destructive about these projects related to what you were just saying, Lear, is the scale of them. Because you know, fossil fuels are extremely destructive. And we've already gotten people accusing us that we love fossil fuels and we must be getting paid by the, the Koch brothers or something like that, which is hilarious to me and anyone who knows me, because you know, I've, I've literally climbed on top of equipment and chained myself to it you know, fossil fuel equipment, I've stood in front of coal trains to block them, right? I've been fighting the fossil fuel industry for decades. Um, and one thing you can say about fossil fuels for all the terrible, horrific harm that they do is that they're very energy dense, right? Um, oil has an energy density of about 46 megajoules per kilogram. It doesn't really matter exactly what those numbers mean, but the energy density is 46 megajoules per kilogram. The energy density of a lithium ion battery, which is basically the best form of battery available today, is one megajoule per kilogram, right? So it's 46 times more energy dense than the most advanced uh, batteries in widespread production today. And what that means, you know, you can expand the same thing out to look at solar and wind. You need a lot of land to harness vast amounts of solar energy and wind energy you know, to meet industrial levels of energy demand. You need huge amounts of land. And so Mark Jacobson, who Lier was just referencing, he's one of the main cheerleaders of these 100% uh, green energy plans. He's an engineer at Stanford University and he's looked up to, he's cited by you know, Greenpeace and all these organizations as uh, Mark Jacobson is the engineer who's come up with these plans to save the world. And besides talking about, you know, expanding hydropower by a factor of 15, like Lear just said, the scale of the wind and solar energy that he talks about is astounding. So for example, in just the state of California alone, he talks about installing enough wind turbines over the next nine years uh, that would cover an area four times the size of Yosemite National Park. That's more than 4,000 square miles. So that's new energy development, new industrial energy development. That, that, that's not, uh, you know, that's not, uh, it's happening on top of all the destruction that's happened in the past, right? So California has already been sliced up with freeways and housing developments and oil and gas drilling and uh, logging and all these different harms. And now you have so-called environmentalists pushing for 4,000 square miles of new industrial energy development. Uh, and that's just in one state, right? So uh, I think across the board, the, the bright green lies are incredibly harmful because they lead our movement in the wrong direction. They lead us astray. And they prevent us from actually getting to the root of these issues and actually talking about real solutions. Yes, thank you. you, you it's made very clear in the book. The arguments are 100% convincing as far as I can see, well-researched. Uh, the data is all there for anybody. And, and I encourage all of our listeners to, uh, to get this book and dig into this. Um, What's going on with us? Are we, what is this collective denial? We're, we, we seem to just 
it's this is a, a diversion this bright green movement it seems why are we so easily diverted is it are we addicted to our comforts and conveniences and and you guys talk about winning the hearts and minds of people how do we begin to get people's hearts and minds on the right track and as you say asking the right questions about these technological solutions quote unquote Well, I think we need to talk about Lewis Mumford and the Magnificent Bribe. So Lewis Mumford is probably the foremost theorist who explained the nature of civilization and technology and how cultures um, create a whole suite of uh, both um, ideo ideology and also um, social forms and technology. And all of that together is called a technique. And his claim was that techniques were either authoritarian or democratic. And when you look at all of these so-called green technologies, they are as authoritarian as you could get because they rely on um, vast amounts of environmental destruction and I mean, ultimately slavery, all mining. I mean, mining is so horrific that throughout human history, it's always been slaves who carried it out. So, you know, you've got children in Africa who are in cobalt mines essentially, so that we can have our cell phones. And all of these green technologies depend on those rare earths like cobalt. Um, I mean, there's a 60 mile wide toxic lake in China um, that is around the, the biggest rare earth mine there. You can see it from outer space. Um, and, you know, everybody who lives in the local area is dying of pancreatic cancer. Um, they used to be able to provide for their own food. They could fish from the river. Um, you know, they grew fruits and vegetables and had their own way of life and it, it's over. You can't, nobody can live there anymore. And this is what's demanded. But in order to force people to do that, you're gonna need a military. You're gonna need <laughs> colonies where these things can be done, where human life is cheap and you can destroy their way of life and make them all sick. And no one's gonna notice because the powerful don't care. So. That's been true since the beginning of civilization. That's the problem with this pattern. And all we've done is accelerate this process. Um, and so that's what these technologies are based on is you're, you're gonna have to have a hierarchical world. And the reason we don't see it is because we live behind the military barricade, us who live in the, in the wealthy countries. We don't see the damage. It's done in the hinterlands. So it's done in rural China. It's done in the rural United States in places where a lot, a lot of people live and they are, these projects are universally resisted, whether they're dams or wind turbines or the horrifying rare earth mines. Nobody wants to live near them. They know that it will poison their livestock and poison the children and everyone will have asthma and all the rest of it, but they don't have the power to resist it. So this was Lewis Mumford's point. And he said it was a magnificent bribe that if we give over our souls um, and all of our essential freedoms, we will be given in exchange a bunch of material comforts. And he wasn't even writing now. I mean, this was in the 60s. He could not have imagined the internet, um, but he predicted it all and, and he's right. So that's the bribe that those of us who are living in you know, the wealthy sections of the world will get all this stuff in exchange for pretending we don't know, for um, organizing our own ignorance so we don't have to know. And I don't know, getting addicted to our cell phones. Um, I guess some people think it's worth it. I don't know. I love the line by Upton Sinclair about it's hard to make a man understand something when his job depends on him not understanding it. And I would extend that to say it's hard to make people understand something when their entitlement 
depends on them not understanding it. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty clear. Solar photovoltaics don't grow on trees and wind turbines aren't, as you say, born in the spring. And um, this, that one of the things we do in the book that, that is not particularly difficult and I don't understand why more people, well, we just said why more people don't do it, is, um, is simply follow back chains of supply. So um, if you, well, uh, uh, one example, <clears throat> excuse me, is several years ago, I got interviewed by somebody who was a dedicated Marxist who believed that it was possible to have um, an entire industrial economic system based on purely voluntary exchanges in which no one was exploited. And I said, great, do you have a city? He said, yes, we have in cities, people live in cities. I said, great, how do you get around your cities? And he said, well, in a bus. I said, great, what's the bus made of? He said, metal. I said, where do you get the metal? He said, mines. I said, how do you get people to work in the mines? Because you know, that's that first form of one of the first forms of slavery. So you pay them a whole lot. And I said, well, I'll give you that one. But what do you do about the fact that every single hard rock mine that has ever existed pollutes groundwater and pollutes local rivers? Um, what do you do for the people who live by the river, even just ignoring the fish? He said, well, you pay them to move. I said, what if they won't move? He said, well, you pay them more. And I said, no, they're not gonna move because their ancestors are buried there and they won't leave their ancestors. This is their land, they lived there for 5,000 years. He said, how many of them are there? I said, what difference does it make? Um, 500. He said, well, the million people in the city vote and the 500 people who live by the river have to leave. And I say, so what you've done is you've gone from purely voluntary exchanges where nobody is exploited to democratic empire, uh, land theft from indigenous people and genocide also you can have a bus. And the point is that, oh, well, one point is you didn't get it. Um, another point is this all took place in less than a minute. And that's an example of what Mumford meant by an authoritarian technique, that if you're gonna have materials made out of metal, you have to have mines. In order to have mines, you have to have a military to take the land you have to have a police force to protect the ore. You have to have a transportation system to move the ore. And it's not like you can take one of these items, one of these, you can't take some item like this microphone out of context that this microphone requires the entire infrastructure. And one more, one more thing I'll say about this and then, and then I'll let other people take over is that I want people to look around right now and to fix on some odd, well, first off, we're all inside, which is dreadful right there. Second, um, take any item, like what's that? Is it a, little bench. a little bench and ask yourself how many trucks were involved in getting this to your house. So for a bench, first you have the logging truck, that took the, the lot, well, before that you have the, 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 the equipments that made the road. 
And then after that, you have the logging, well, you have the people who drove their cars out to the logging site. We'll skip those. And then you have the logging truck. <laughs> and then you take it to the sawmill. And then from the sawmill, it gets transported to the factory. And from the factory, it gets transported to Home Depot or wherever it was. And then, I mean, and there's probably a half dozen more trucks in there I'm not even thinking about. And a couple of things about this. One is that um, we don't think about these things, but we should. They don't just suddenly appear. And then the other is that um, this is another reason that the bright greens ideas won't work is earlier Max mentioned the incredible density of of gas or diesel and so if you have a semi semi truck it has a 60,000 pound payload and it can go about 600 miles on a tank of diesel for it to go the same distance with lithium ion batteries it would have to have 55,000 pounds of batteries which is only a 5,000 pound payload which makes the whole thing pointless so that simply won't work unless they scale up the storage ability by a factor of 46. <laughs> and then also one more thing, we think we're so clever when we make a lithium ion battery that stores uh, one kilogram, I mean one megajoule per kilogram, but nature made this thing called fat that is I believe 27 megajoules per kilogram. Carbohydrates I think are 17. Um, and so it cracks me up that we think we're so excited when we make something that has less than a third the energy storage capacity of a potato. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so on that silly note, Max, do you want to give him a, a better answer? Oh, I want to say one more thing too, which is you said something about how do we get people to resist or how are we, pe I think a lot of it is you know, NIMBY is generally a dirty word, right. but I don't have a problem with NIMBY at all. I think it's a huge start. It's like my friend John Osborne says, so many environmentalists begin by wanting to protect a specific piece of ground and they end up questioning the foundations of Western civilization. At least they used to. Well, and if you're not going to let them do that, you're going to have. Can you, uh, can you start, a, start fresh there? Yeah, it seems like there's a delay. The mic takes a minute to pick up your voice. We paid special for this mic, and it's supposed to work. Add at it. Well, that, no. What this this entire talk is, in fact, this was intentional okay. because we're doing a performance art piece about the relationship between humans and technology, and how there are always <laughs> unintended consequences. So like the mic doesn't. Work. You're welcome for that. Thank you very much. Show's over. No, I just I don't understand if you're not going to care about the creatures that you live with and. I mean, that's where it starts. I look out the window and I have redwood trees and I have rabbits and there are bears and there are mountain lions because I'm really lucky here. Um, but I don't know how you can't love them and know that you need them in a really primary way. If we don't have trees and grasses and animals, we can't do any of this. You and I cannot make oxygen, right? I mean, we can't, we can't eat rock. We need plants to break up rocks and make minerals available for our bodies to function that you know that's where the minerals come from um we need all of this stuff we can't make rain we don't do any of it and 
I don't know how, what people think they're going to breathe when the trees, the grasses, and especially the plankton are gone, that two out of three animal breaths, the oxygen is produced by the plankton in the oceans. And the plankton populations are collapsing now because the oceans have gotten too acidic. They've absorbed all the carbon that we've been releasing. And the, um, the, the oceans are just getting, they're too acid. So the, the plankton are having a terrible time reproducing. That's our air. <laughs> That's what we breathe. I don't know what people think we're going to do in 50 years or 100 years when there's no oxygen. This is this is just what this is what we've done. And I don't know, like, how do you not care about the people who make your oxygen for you? These, I mean, I know they're small and green and we don't really see them much, but we owe them so much. Like, how do we not just how are our hearts just not ripped open? as species by species, they go down. I, I don't have an answer to that, I don't know. If I can just uh, remind our audience that we're, we're gonna be taking audience questions and feel free to type into the Q&A tab down at the bottom of your screen and we'll get to audience questions towards the end of the session. Thanks Ross, yeah, I would just add that, you know, as Lear and Derek said, these industrial energy projects are pretty much universally resisted by the people who actually face them. You know, when it comes down to it, not many people actually want the mountain that they hike on with their grandkids to be blown up and their watershed to be toxified. Um, so, you know, that's one of the biggest ways that these bright green lies are perpetuated is the exact same way that the lies of fossil fuels, the destructiveness of this entire industrial culture is systematically hidden from people through that system of colonization that Lear was talking about in imperialism, the exploitation of places that are far away, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons why we live in this world where racism and patriarchy are sort of the default modes of the culture is because when you other people and you make them non-human, then it's so much easier to exploit them. And that's what this culture relies on to perpetuate you know, systems of sweatshop labor and extraction and destruction and sexual violence and so on. And you know, we share a lot of stories in the book about communities all around the world that are fighting the new face of industrial energy colonialism which isn't just fossil fuels anymore, although oftentimes the same exact companies are behind them. You know, now they're fighting lithium mines in Tibet or their communities in Mexico or in Colombia fighting industrial wind energy projects. Or, you know, we tell the story of a community, a Sami community, indigenous communities in, you know, Northern Finland and Norway fighting the wind industry coming in to do industrial energy development on their reindeer herding lands, you know, traditional lands that they've herded reindeer on for thousands and thousands of years. And now the wind energy industry is coming in and calling it green. And so these Sami activists are saying, this is green colonialism. And, you know, I have been working for the past couple months in Northern Nevada on uh, Paiute and Shoshone territory, fighting against a lithium mine, a proposed lithium mine. And that's lithium to, create the batteries for electric cars, to create batteries for energy storage for solar and wind. And this lithium mine would 
completely destroy this mountainside, toxify the water, uh, you know, impact all these wildlife species. And, you know, I just heard the tribal community out there, they have about 350 people living on the reservation. Um, and the mining company worked with a corrupt, uh, a corrupt government official and, you know, supposedly got consent from the tribe for the project. They just did a, a, a referendum or a vote in their community. Literally all of them but 10 voted against the project. So, you know, 340 out of the 350 people or something on this reservation voted against the project. That's resistance, right? That's because those people have a connection to that land. You know, those elders are telling us the story of how that place got its name, telling us the story of their grandchild who shot his first deer up in that pass. And, you know, in their tradition, your first deer, you give everything away. You give it all away to your community to, you know, to make it not about your ego and, you know, I'm a great hunter and I'm so amazing. But, you know, this is a gift from the land. This is reciprocity. This is a process of life. This is how we sustain each other in our communities. And, you know, that's what's at stake from this actually a Canadian mining company based in Vancouver, BC, uh, Lithium Americas Corporation down at uh, 600, 900 Hastings Street, if anybody wants to go pay them a visit. Uh, they, they are coming in here not to try and save the planet, they want to make billions of dollars of profit by blowing up a mountain and stealing what resources they can. And they're going to do everything they can to get away with it. This isn't green. This isn't anything different. This is the exact same story of resource extraction and colonialism that has ruined the world. And we need to recognize that and we need to fight against it. One of the most important concepts anybody ever taught me was uh, Robert J. Lifton uh, wrote The Nazi Doctors and many other books. And he argues that before you can commit any mass atrocity, you have to convince yourself and others that what you're doing is not in fact atrocious, but instead beneficial. So you're actually doing a good thing. It's called a claim to virtue. And the example he used, or one of the examples he used, was the Nazis were not, in their own mind, committing mass murder and genocide. They were purifying the Aryan race. Um, and likewise, you know, as, as, as settler society moved its way across the country, the continent, um, they weren't committing land theft and genocide. They were manifesting their destiny. And capitalists aren't killing the planet they are developing natural resources. And it's just the same today. And I wanna be clear that I'm not, you know, this is one of those things where when I point the finger out, the other three fingers are pointing here um, because I know in my own life, I mean, this is just a standard thing. In my own life, I have never once been a jerk. Um, by which I mean, every time I have objectively been a jerk, I've had it fully rationalized. So really the whole claims to virtue thing is just about the magnificent ability of humans to rationalize their behavior. And this is just more of the same. And now I want, I'm, 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 gonna, I'm gonna humbly request you tell the quick story of the Wildcats, Scottish Wildcats. It's just one example of the, the creatures, the places and the creatures that are being destroyed 
in Scotland, there's a very ancient um, cat that they have there, the Scottish wildcat. Um, and only wildcat in the it's the only Britain. one in, in Great Britain or in, in the, the United Kingdom and the, the on the island on the islands there, archipelago. Um, and there's 35 of them left. And I don't mean 3,500 and I don't mean 35,000, I mean 3535. That's all that's left. And they live in this one little bit of forest that's pretty much the only forest that's left. And all of it is slated for destruction for a wind farm. And when the forest goes, the sand of the cats, they've got nowhere else. So that's it. So those are your choices and it's, it's that grim. It's, these are the last wild places and they are about to be colonized. So. And it's been pushed by environmentalists. Yeah, and fought by environmentalists too. But it this is, I mean, this is the, this is the fruition of the last twenty years of or thirty years of of the this, you know, the climate change people really who I think are very conflicted. They must be in their souls because I, I think they feel the emergency very strongly of what's happened to the climate. But um, if you don't identify the correct problem, you're never going to find the right solution. So we are solving for the wrong variable if all we want to do is keep powering the destruction of the planet you're going to find more and more destructive technologies and that's what they've done you know i'm sorry i'm i just got to say one thing because you know i read bill mckibben's recent piece in the new yorker uh, a couple weeks ago and you know, along the lines of that choice that you're talking about, Lear, and the magnificent bribe that Lewis Mumford talks about, Bill McKibben says in the, he starts off his essay by saying, you know, nature is so beautiful. A lot of people, because of the pandemic, have been spending more time outside than ever and have this experience of falling in love with the natural world. And then he says, you know, this, the reality is that because to tackle global warming, we're going to need all this green energy and it's going to require destroying some of this landscape. He uses some euphemisms. He doesn't say it straight out like that, but that's exactly what he's saying. And his response to that is, you know, people are fighting back. People are trying to protect those wildcats, to protect their mountain, to protect their watershed. And Bill McKibben's response to it is basically to say, we should bribe those people. We should give them the economic benefits of these energy production projects so that they won't fight back. And, you know, Bill McKibben's done a lot of great work to great raise awareness of global warming and so on. But I think that's completely unforgivable to say something like that, you know, to say that we just need to, we need to bribe people so they won't fight back against the destruction of their lands. Um, I think that's absolutely horrible. And you know, this is somebody who's considered the preeminent climate change leader of, of the climate movement. And you know, he's saying we need more industrial energy development. And if people are going to fight back, we should bribe them so that they don't, so that they stop. That's that's the bright green lies in action. The utter invisibility of Again, the wildcats, you can't bribe the wildcats. They don't want money. They want habitat. They want food. They want a place to live. They want their dens. They want their, home. they want their home. They want their mates. That's what they want. They don't want our money. You can't bribe them. So either they count or they don't. It, it, um, it brings up, you, you guys, in the solutions section of your book, you, you point to 
the grief that we have to face when we acknowledge the reality of this situation on our planet and what we have done and continue to do. Um, as a starting point, how do we how do we work with that grief and utilize it in a way that can be useful? I've always been a big fan of uh, Joe Hill's line, don't mourn, organize. And um, I guess you can mourn and organize. Um, and part of it is that For me, at least, I recognize one, one of the reasons that I've written so many books is because when I start to feel overwhelmed by grief or when I start to feel really, when I start to worry about my own feelings associated with all of the destruction that we see around us, I, I recognize that I can turn away. And the Scottish wildcats don't have that option. The desert tortoises don't have that option. And so when I start to feel bad because we're in such a bad way, it's like, well, Pacific lampreys need us now. And coho salmon need us now. And delta smelt need us now. And um, and I, I sometimes think about uh, a line that somebody said to Bob Marley. They they said he was evidently a very hard worker, which is pretty interesting because he was also smoking like an ounce of pot every day. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, somebody asked him why he why he doesn't just take days off, and he said because the other side doesn't take days off, and you know industrialism keeps going and 200 species go extinct every day. And, and, and my response to that is to simply feel it, feel, feel the, the, the sorrow and the rage, and then to, to move forward with them. Because I've, I've noticed that a lot of people will spend a lot more energy attempting to not feel them than simply feeling them move on because they're afraid that if they feel them, they will, the, the sorrow will never stop. And that's true. I mean, there is, the sorrow and the grief is, is a, a coal um, burning, you know, it, it's, it's, it's an ember burning inside that never, never goes away. The, the pain never stops, but at the same time, you learn that you can feel it and it doesn't kill you. And you can still sing and you can still make love and you can still fight like hell. And then there's another thing that happens <clears throat> when you really allow yourself to feel all that pain is that it does kill you. And there's a wonderful thing about being dead, which is that once you're dead, they can't touch you anymore because the you that dies is the you that identified with the system more than with the planet, more than your land base. And that you actually does need to die so that you can uh, 
and of course, I'm talking about a spiritual metaphorical death. I'm not talking about a physical death. Um, because one of the things, I mean, so many indigenous people have said to me that the first and most important thing that we have to do is to decolonize our hearts and minds. And there are many things that can be meant by that. But one of the ones that is really important to me is that switching of loyalties. One of my favorite lines in the book is, and one that we refer to quite often is Naomi Klein says, and this changes everything in the, the film, um, the polar bears don't do it for her. And that's fine, but that's the problem right there. And what we need to do is to make our loyalty, take our loyalty away from the system. Because when people ask, how can we stop global warming? What they're really asking is how can we stop global warming without stopping industrial civilization? If they say, how can we save the salmon? What they're really asking is not how do we save the salmon? We're asking how do we save the salmon without removing dams, without stopping industrial logging, without stopping industrial fishing, without stopping global warming, without stopping the murder of the oceans? And the answer is you can't. That's like, how can I, how can I stop the emphysema without stopping smoking and without walking through asbestos clouds every day and like, you can't. And so we do need to, to give up on, you know, all of my work, all these 20 some books can be summed up in one sentence, which is this way of life won't last forever. And when it's done, I would prefer that more of the world is left rather than less. And once you stop the fantasy that you can have it all, you can consume a planet and live on it. Once, you, once that fantasy is driven from your body, then, then things become much, much, much more clear. Years ago, when, when I was a teenager, I read this story about um, this girl who had been through this horrible trauma, and in the recovery process, her physical therapist told her, you're allowed to feel sorry for yourself 10 minutes out of every, every hour. 10 minutes is healthy. If you need to just lie there and cry, that's fine. Just stare at the ceiling, that's fine. But the other 50 minutes, you get up and you make a future. And I never forgot that. And it has really... Um, it's done well by me. And even in times of really severe personal grief, all right, you can lie in the bed and cry for 10 minutes and you can stare at the ceiling, but at the 10 minute mark, you're gonna get up and you're gonna keep going with your life and it works. Because even in those times of really bad grief, if you've been walking around the house doing laundry for five minutes, you do kind of forget how bad it was 10 minutes ago. Like you, but you have to make yourself, you have to just keep going even through the bad times. So that's one and that's just personal, but also friends really need a group of people around you who are willing to understand the nature of the problem. Like none of us can do this alone. So open invitation, if you wanna join our group, Deep Green Resistance, you can do that. We're a very nice group of people and we all have this analysis, but find people who will do this with you because you will feel crazy if you're the only one. And I don't think anyone can do it alone. Two things, one is, um... This goes back to why everybody should support Banyan Books, um, that uh, a book in my late 20s saved my sanity and saved my life. It was Neil Everenden's The Natural Alien, uh, written by a Canadian, by the way. 
And um, I came across that and it was the first book I had ever read that took non-human, uh, the value of non-human lives for, for, their, for their own sakes as a given, as opposed to their value to the economy. And I remember thinking, I'm not crazy. The culture's crazy. And then another thing I want to say real quick, I, I got to ask you a question, Ross, first, is, is it acceptable to swear? Oh, don't go away, because I'm going to ask you to say something. Sure, yeah, free, free speech here. Okay, so um, I want you to tell about the uh, PLFs who FGID. Your... Oh, yeah. So I have a family member who's um, ex-military, British military, and um, they have these great little acronyms, which I, they just sum up so much in life that you need. So one of them is you're a PLF, which means you're a persistent little fucker. And I'm a persistent little fucker. I'm just not going to give up. And the other really good one that I love is um, just fucking get it done which is JFGID. No, I don't, I don't know about the J. Yeah, yeah and so I mean, he just drops these into conversation all the time. And now I know what they mean, but it's like those two things will see you far. Be a persistent little fucker who just fucking gets it done. <laughs> didn't, didn't he say that like they understand that 90% of a project gets done by the PLFs and- Yeah, I mean, more or less. It's, I mean, the psychology behind a lot of that is probably bigger than this conversation, but it's very interesting. But yeah, you need the PLFs. Them. And we actually have one in the lower left corner of this <laughs> with Max. I mean, this whole Thacker Pass thing is just, sorry if the L offends you, Max, but it's, but it's a, I mean, it's just a PLF who's just getting out there in FGID. Thanks for that. Yeah, I would, you know, I would just add on the topic of grief and all this I feel it really heavy at times, like I think we all do, you know, it, it's a lot to, to these truths and um, it sweeps you away sometimes, you know, you feel like you're lost in a storm at night or something. And, um, and I just want to say to people like that grief is yours, you know, like that grief is a sacred thing. That grief is like a gift from the world, you know you grieve for what you love and what you respect and what you revere, you know, and that, that is a true gift. It's not something to be afraid of or run away from. It's something to embrace, you know, and to honor. And, um, you know, I gotta, I guess I gotta throw in a, um, throw in a Harry Potter reference here, <laughs> but, you know, that was one of the brilliant things that JK Rowling did in, in Harry Potter was there's all these amazing, you know, spells and magic powers and all these things. But the point that she keeps putting in throughout the whole series is that the, the strongest power is love, right? And that wasn't just like an offhand corny line that she throws in, you know, to appease people or make it sound poppy or whatever. She was actually making a really important point, which is that, you know, if your worldview is based on exploitation and destruction, you literally are lacking this force, this emotion uh, that can be one of the most strongest things in the human experience, right? This can be even, even beyond the human experience, right? There's crop, you can have love for the natural world and love between different species and so on. And that force can motivate people to do extraordinary things. 
um, it can motivate people to come together and work in ways that they never thought possible before. And, you know, so of course, Harry Potter in the book sort of dismisses it. And he's like, this is silly. I just need some great spells. Give me the right spell so I can defeat the enemy. Um, and, you know, we're in a similar situation here, right? We don't have a magic wand that we can wave and make industrial civilization go away. We wish that we could, but the strongest force that we do have is that love, you know, and, and if we revere it and we respect it and we work to build that, that emotion in all of us, that is a power that will not abandon us, right? That's a power that will not go away and it will carry us um, through that grief and through all the struggles that we have to get through. So now I've exposed myself as a total geek. Uh, so I'll pass it back to you, Ross. <laughs> love it. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we're going to get on to our audience questions now. We, we were scheduled for an hour and 15. We've just got 10 minutes left. So I'd like to get to a couple of them. Um, and thank you all so far for your heartfelt words and, and all the great information. Um, first question is uh, from Daniel. And he asks, have there been any good faith criticisms of specifics in the book, Bright Green Lies, from mainstream environmental individuals or groups? I don't think it's been out long enough. So nobody's really attempted that yet. We have a few reviews that have come out and there's some feedback on Amazon, um, but I don't think there's been anything that do you, are you? The, the most, the, the one negative comment that is, is good faith, but I disagree with is um, uh, that we don't support nuclear. <laughs> um, which, which everybody gets, everybody who, who opposes yeah. the bright green stuff says, well, and one of the last things to be written was the preface or mm. the foreword or whatever it is. And we didn't deal with nuclear at all in the book because nuclear is just such a terrible idea that we didn't even think we needed to. Yeah. And then the publisher said, you know, you really need to. And so that's why, that's one reason you added that. So do you want to give the the 30 second why nuclear is bad to respond to the 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 one because I think it was a good faith criticism. I just disagree. It wasn't like you're nasty people because I, mean, I hate you. What is there even to say? You know, we're making garbage we will never be able to throw away. It's going to be toxic for millions of years. Why would anybody ever suggest doing that? I can't believe we did it. I can't believe there are nuclear power plants running now. It's just madness. And also from an EROI perspective, energy return on energy invested, nuclear is still not a good idea it's when not. you do a full cost, full cost accounting, when you include the mining, the refining. The cement, the iron, the, the steel, all of it. Yeah. So I went to the Colorado School of Mines for my first degree back 79 to 83. And the School of Mines is every bit as conservative as you would expect from a college with that name. I mean, a bumper sticker you would see around the campus, not infrequently, was um, let the bastards freeze in the dark. And that was against environmentalism. And anyway, even there, most of my professors were against nuclear power um, for reasons for engineering, 
and EROI, EROEI reasons. Um, it was pretty interesting. Even in this extremely conservative, rah, rah, we need to mine asteroids for God's sake, college, they still didn't particularly like nuclear. And they there said, you know, I've never, I haven't got, I, I'm just gonna say this as a rumor. I remember hearing my teachers say this, but I haven't looked it up myself, that primarily uh, they were, they, some of them argued, and again, these aren't liberal hippies, these are right-wing energy fiends. They argued that the nuclear energy industry was primarily a justification for the military uh, uh, uranium industry. That basically it's something to do uh, with the infrastructure that you had created for military uses. Again, I don't want people quoting me on that because that's just a rumor I heard a long time ago, which I'm gleefully passing on. Awesome. Is there anything you want to add to that, Max, or should we move on to the next question? Okay. So the question is from Sabina. She asks, all three of you are educators in a sense that your goal is to inform. Independent bookstores are one source, but they are only as good as the independent publishers allow them to be. What do you see as the major hurdles that keep people who require trustworthy sources of information, such as publishers, authors, mass media, educational institutions, to base their motivation for activism on your point? What do you see as the major hurdles that keep people who require trustworthy sources of information to base their motivation for activism on your point? I think probably the biggest hurdle is, well, I think there are two, two main hurdles and one is actually uh, significantly larger than the other. I think the largest hurdle is that the entire culture has been incessantly uh, inculcated into the ideology of progress for really hundreds of years at this point. I mean, we live in a culture that essentially worships progress as a god. And the, the Chainsaw writer, Linda Hogan, uh, who if you haven't checked out her work, she's one of the best writers I've ever read. She says something like, progress is like a god to people. Indian people stood in the way of progress and you can justify atrocities uh, for progress. And that whole mindset, I think, is the underlying ideology. It's the ruling ideology that reflects the technology that it both enables and requires to be pushed forward. Um, again, to go back to Lewis Mumford, he talks about that relationship between a technology and the social structure that emerges from it and creates it, um, this sort of toxic process, right? whereby an authoritarian technology or authoritarian technique sort of becomes a power in its own right. It builds its own momentum and it shapes the culture itself. Um, so we live in this world in which most people don't really feel like they have any control. You know, Even if they do have criticisms of technology, they feel like their kids spend too much time on their cell phones. 
um, or the kids themselves feel, you know, depressed because of all the things that they're seeing online, all these messages that they're getting. Um, a lot of people have criticisms of the technological escalation that we're living in. It's actually very mainstream to critique industrial technology and the places that it's taken us. You'll see articles, you know, every week in the newspaper on these topics. Um, but most people don't feel like they have any sort of control over the direction that our society is heading in. And, you know, I think there are a lot of different reasons for that, political, economic, and so on. But, you know, we've been disempowered. We've been fundamentally disempowered by this culture. They say that we live in a democracy or a representative, uh, a representative system, but most people don't actually feel like they have any say in the day-to-day -day decisions, let alone larger decisions of their community. You know, I didn't choose to be born into a world dominated by cars and consumption and so on. I was just born here and, you know, I've tried to do the best I can to survive and get by. And I think most everyone feels that way. And if we're going to get through these problems, then I think we need to start to take hold of where our society is headed, right? And that means seizing power back from the corporations, seizing power back from the vested financial in interests and these industries that are largely making the choices, determining where our world is headed, and saying, no, we're not going to allow this to happen. We're not going to go hurtling further into this industrial apocalypse. Uh, you know, just typing away with our phones, our phones glued to our face the whole time. Um, and then I think the, the second big hurdle is the bright green movement itself. I think that, you know, we call this book bright green lies, right? It's not bright green mistakes or bright green ideas or something like that. It's bright green lies. And we did that deliberately because these ideas are being set up deliberately and being presented in a certain way deliberately to undermine opposition, to push all the energy and all the momentum in this direction, right? So if you're a young person today, if you're 12 years old and you're starting to get terrified about global warming and you start going on Instagram or TikTok or whatever and looking for information on these things, you're going to find mostly these lies, right? That's what you're going to find. And that's what you're going to glom onto because that's where all your peers are. And so this is, you know, an active force. These lies are not uh, something static. They're being actively developed and perpetuated and pushed forward by institutions and individuals and businesses uh, that serve to profit from them. So I think those are two, at least, of the hurdles. Thank you. Um, one of my favorite quotes is by Henry Adams. Uh, the press is the hired agent of a moneyed system set up for no other purpose than to tell lies where the interests are concerned. And the press is the hired agent of a moneyed system set up for no other purpose than to tell lies where the interests are concerned. And I put that a little bit differently. Um, I say all writers are propagandists. And what I mean by that is when you write something, you are choosing what to write and what not to write. And so you are pushing a position, whether you acknowledge it or not. That's just 
that's just normal. I mean, you know, Plato was pushing one position and Antisthenes was pushing another. And, you know, I'm pushing one position and Bill McKibben's pushing another. That's all fine. But when you combine that, you go back to Henry Adams with the, the Press of the Higher Age of Money System. I asked Robert McChesney about that quote, the media critic about that back in the 90s. And he said, yeah, there was a big difference between Henry Adams' time and now, though, in that in Henry Adams' time, this is absolutely true what he was saying, but there might also be 15 newspapers in a big city. And there would be a lot of small publishers and there wasn't monopolistic control of the distribution of that information. So what this means is you can have one newspaper, oh God, you know, when I think about uh, political shenanigans and people, okay, I couldn't stand Trump, I hated Trump, but I hated also the fact that the Democrats would take anything he said, even something innocent, and twist it. And of course, the Republicans do that all the time too, but I expect that from the right. I just somehow expected something better from the left. But then I read this thing a couple of years ago about the Lincoln-Douglas debates in the United States back in 1858, whenever it was that the Lincoln-Douglas debates were taking place. And it's so funny that what the newspapers did is all, newspapers from around the country would send stenographers and they're writing down all these debates as fast as they could. And the newspapers that supported Douglas would clean up everything Douglas said and they would keep the grammatical errors that Lincoln said. And the newspapers that supported Lincoln would clean up what Lincoln said and keep all the grammatical errors that Douglas said. So my point is, you're always gonna get this. But the problem now is like I said, Amazon controlling 50% of book distribution in the United States and a very small number of publishers. Um, there are smaller publishers who have kept springing up to fill that gap, but you have, I mean, even Barack Obama said a few months ago that uh, the biggest threat to democracy right now are the big tech companies. And the lockdown that they have on discourse, I find terrifying, which is again, and I, this is the last time I'll do it because I don't want to seem like just a shill for Banyan books, uh, but this is why independent bookstores and small publishers are so, so important because that, if you make certain ideas unspeakable, then you can't, talk about them. And so it's really important to, and combine this with modern cancel culture. And it's, well, I mean, cancel culture has been around for a long time. I mean, for God's sake, the blacklist of the fifties, you know, that the, the cancel culture is nothing new. Um, oh, for God's sake, what about uh, blasphemy laws? And, you know, you, you get, keep, get people burned at the stake for going against the Catholic church. I mean, can't, that's, that's some cancel culture right there. Um, Anyway, the, so cancel culture is nothing new either, but the point is when you combine it with this media uh, monopolization, it really tightens the screws down. I wanna say one more thing, which is that um, we got a question the last talk we did and I wasn't happy with our answer. And the question was, do the people like McKibben and Klein and Jacobson, do they all believe, do they all actually believe this stuff? Because a lot of the, the lies are pretty self-evident. 
And we answered it. I don't remember how we answered it, but I didn't like it. And I was thinking about it later and I realized how I wanted to say it. And what I really wanted to say was it doesn't really matter whether they believe it or not. The important thing is that if they didn't exist, the capitalist system would have to create them. If they didn't believe it, somebody else would. It doesn't matter if they didn't say it, somebody else would because that's what is serving the ends of capital right now is to have these, these ideas pushed forward. And so the point is, this is just how the whole nonprofit world works. If you say this, if you say that we can continue to consume the planet and the solution is just to switch the fuel source from oil to wind and solar, you will get grants from the Rockefeller Family Foundation. You will get grants to promote that idea. You will get published by the big places. And this isn't a conspiracy. It's like my friend George Raffin says, you don't have to have a conspiracy when everybody thinks the same. And anyway, the, the, I'll, I'll say one thing and then just shut up, which is that the, the big threat I see right now is that media, media uh, concentration, which again, makes you a freedom fighter, freedom fighter on the front lines of, of the information wars. Oh God, you can't say info wars anymore after Alex Jones. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we're, we've, we've hit our time uh, and I just want to say there, there's so much information about the misinformation in this book. And I really encourage our audience to go out and get this book. Uh, it it uh, unpacks all the bright green lies and then at the end lays out very clear solutions um, uh, for action going forward. So uh, again, it's Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It. Uh, our guests today were Derek Jensen, Lear Keith, and Max Wilbert, the three co-authors of this wonderful book. And again, there's, there's a documentary coming out. You can stream it online. Go to www.brightgreenlies.com. And of course, you can purchase the book from anywhere in the world at our website, www.banyan.com that's b-a-n-y-e-n.com as Derek graciously promoted us uh, many times today please support your local independent bookstores thank you so much uh, Derek Lear and Max for joining us today thank you Ross thank you <laughs>